This is Carly Sugar, and you're listening to Drinking and Drashing, Torah with a Twist. We'll be talking about Shemitah, one of my favorite parts of the Torah. Hey, Amanda. What's up, Gabe? So we've got a really interesting double portion this week. Another one? Yup, another one. This time, Bahar Bechukotai. Oh, I like alliteration. Yeah, right? So in this Torah portion, we get a whole bunch of laws about agriculture and also how to treat people and, yeah, some other stuff. Okay, so I feel pretty good about the treating people well thing, but the farming thing, I mean, like, I come from a family where, like, my mom has a black thumb. Like, we managed to kill plants pretty easily. I'm not sure I'm the right person for this episode. Well, luckily, we have two amazing guests who know a lot about farming. Let's get to it. With springtime all around us, it is impossible to deny how much this podcast has grown and keeps on growing to the point that somehow we are at our 25th episode. I'm not sure how we got here, but I'm very excited to be here. I am even more thrilled to introduce our guests today. We have Carly Sugar and we have Nicole Bard who are going to speak with us about what it is to grow and what the land might need in order to make that so. Carly Sugar is a food grower, educator, and advocate who has lived and worked in the city of Detroit on Anishinaabe land for almost 10 years. Her work explores the intersection of food skills, Jewish practice, and social change work driven by the wisdom of Detroit's food system workers, leaders, and activists. Carly is calling in from Adama Farm at Isabella Freeman Retreat Center in the Connecticut Berkshires on Mohican land. As Adama Fellowship Director, she facilitates a three-month immersive program for groups of folks in their 20s and 30s, hey, it's like us, who want to learn food and farm skills, Jewish tools for resilience, and intentional community building. Adama cultivates the soil and the soul to produce food, to build and transform identities, and to gather a community of people changing the world. Carly enjoys long, often unfruitful, ironic, foraging walks in the woods and hoarding frozen chicken stock. Carly, Nicole, welcome to the show. We are so excited to be with you today. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I would be remiss if we didn't welcome back our favorite editor and producer, Edon Waldman, who we missed last episode, but are really, really thrilled to bring him back as our timekeeper for Gabe's favorite segment, the 30-second partial Rundown. Right, Gabe? It's going to be 30 seconds today? Not even close. Edon, do you have the time up? Ready to go. Let's go, Gabe. All right. Get ready for some agricultural laws. What, what? In the land of Israel, every seven years, give the land a break. It's kind of like how we take a break for Shabbat every seven days. I wonder if there's a connection there. Anyway, every seven years, no planting, no sowing, no pruning, no reaping, no gathering. But don't worry, you and your people and animals can eat whatever grows naturally. Anything similar to that? Yes, it's the Jubilee year. Every 50th year, that's seven times seven plus one, is a Jubilee year. The shofar is sounded. (laughs) 
And we proclaim liberty throughout the land. People are free and debts are forgiven. The land is given a rest and we all have a nice time. Interesting line, you don't own land, you're just borrowing it from God. Cool. There's a lot in this portion about how to treat people in need. For giving loans to your own people, don't charge interest. That's not nice. Hear that, student loans? Don't treat people down on their luck like slaves. Also, treat your slaves nicely. None of this applies only to Israelites, but to the strangers who dwell among you as well. Treat them nicely, including and especially those in need. Any debts that are yet unpaid and any people in indentured servitude are to be freed in the Jubilee year. Now, for the best transition of all time, idols are bad. If we follow God's laws, there will be rain and the earth will be fertile and the trees will be fruitful and you will have an abundance of food and security. God will grant peace in the land and every person will sit under their own vine and fig tree. Oh wait, that's Hamilton. Nope, sorry, Micah. Shout out to student canter, Becky Mann. Sorry, I got carried away. Anyway, maybe there's a connection there? Weird. So God will favor you and make you fertile and maintain the covenant and will dwell among you and all good things. But also, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, God will make life really difficult. Plants won't grow, there will be violence and instability, and generally bad things will happen. In fact, the punishment will be seven times the sin. Lots of sevens in this portion. In summary, don't do bad things. Some people might make vows of service to the temple. Sometimes they want to get out of those vows good news, you can pay your way out. We've got a whole list of prices for different ages and genders according to the value of their work in the temple. Any firstborn animal belongs to God, but you can pay the temple whatever it's worth to have it for yourself. Anything that's prescribed to the temple can be redeemed for cash sum. Everything has its price. And that's Parashat Behar Bechukotai. Bravo. That was such a, I thought, concise synopsis of a really complicated... Persia, well done. My question is, how long was that? It was two minutes, 16 seconds. Oof. It's longer than I thought it was going to be. I'm a little upset about that. I thought it was great. Thank you. That was awesome. That's all I got to say. I really appreciate that. It was definitely a fruitful summary. Nice. Uh, (laughs) For a Parsha with as long of a name as it has, pretty solid summary. Carly, this idea of cultivating the soil and the soul is such like a beautiful image that that I have in in terms of really actually translating Torah into real life tangible tactics. One of the goals for this podcast, you're really bringing the Torah to the soil itself. And so what we want to know and what our listeners want to know are what drives that? What beliefs or insights really drive that work? What are the passions that move you forward every day? Yeah, I... I think that food is one of the clearest ways that we relate to land as as humans. And there's so much richness in our Jewish tradition around being in relationship to land, being in relationship to food. And yeah, as you mentioned at Adama, we bring the Torah to the soil and those, you know, for example, the prayer before eating a meal becomes such a different thing when you've spent the day in the soil, growing those ingredients and then cooked them in community. And, you know, they're, they're spread before you and you're, and you're getting ready to eat with your friends who you've been in the field with. And it just really transforms. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more to that connection between people and the earth, specifically in Judaism. It's something that's found across cultures and across religious traditions, this connection between humankind and the earth. 
But I'm thinking of Adama specifically, in that Adam means human or person or man, and Adama is the ground. There's a very strong tradition of when people die being returned to the ground. I had a professor in college who refused to call the first man Adam and instead simply referred to him as Mudboy because that's what his name is. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more to how you relate to the ground, not only as a person who grows food, but as a Jewish person. I think um, one way I relate Judaism and earthlings to the earth, uh, some of the main nutrients that plants need to grow are nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And some of the basic compounds of the soil are the same compounds you, you would find in the human body. And they also exist in outer space. Like that's what stars are made of. It's what dust is made of. It's what soil is made of. It's what people are made of. So there's just this undeniability of the interconnectedness of it all. And I think the word Adama, meaning land and the, the, you know, Adam being the first person really illustrates that, that interconnectedness. There's also this idea of B'nai Adam, the children of Adam, meaning like humankind, like we say, kol b'nei adam, like all humankind. But it could also mean children of the earth, right? There's this idea that we come from the earth and to the earth we shall return. I am but dust and ashes. All of those kind of ideas that not only serve to kind of diminish human capacity of like I am but dust and ashes, but also serve, as you said, to create this interconnected worldview where we see ourselves as part of the earth. We see ourselves as intrinsically connected and a part of the ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. We approach everything that we do and so much of our thinking from a human-centered perspective. And this idea of Shemitah kind of communicates that, you know, this land is not just for us. There's other things, creatures, you know, more than human. The whole more than human world is is here on this land. It doesn't belong just to us. Just because we haven't defined it yet, would you mind defining Shemitah for us? Sure. So Shemitah is the practice of letting the land rest every seven years. So similar to on the seventh day of the week, we rest for the day of Shabbat. Shemitah is kind of a Shabbat of the land, a Sabbath of the land. And during the Shemitah year, it's said that we don't, you know, we don't fuss with the land. We, we're not shaping it in the, in the same way that during Shabbat, we just kind of take a break from manipulating the world around us and working on ourselves and just fussing. We do the same during Shemitah the land. So we're not tilling, we're not seeding, we're not transplanting seedlings into the soil. We are just enjoying the food that happens to arrive during that year. And I say happens to arrive, but Jewish farmers are very intentional about how they spend the six years before the Shemitah year in preparation of that. In the same way that during the week, we work really hard, and especially Fridays, we're hustling to get ready for the day of rest. 
I've, I've heard Yom HaShishis, um, Hakad, sorry, that like the sixth day is short. And I'm sure that farmers tend to feel that way about the end of the harvesting season or even like the end of our six years, right? Like, oh my goodness, we have time. I want to maybe shift our focus a little bit away from the Torah portion. Don't tell Gabe. He can't hear me if I go like this. But one of the things that I find really fascinating is the relationship between Judaism and planting and the earth. And I think that that's extraordinary. And so there's a very cool thing that in our oral Torah, so technically I'm taking us in an oral Torah direction, the first order of our Mishnah, our oral Torah, is Zirayim, is seeds. It talks about planting. It talks about the agricultural laws that are meant to be in the land of Israel. It talks about this really important piece of Jewish life that was so clearly significant to the Jewish people that it was the first section of the first order, the first books of the oral Torah. I think that's a really big deal. And so I'm curious, why do you think that might be? Why do you think that there's such a tie between what happens on the earth and what happens in our Torah, whether it's the Torah we read or the Torah that we live or the Torah that we hear? Yeah, I mean, our text comes from an agrarian society. We were an agrarian people. So um, it's so interesting to work with these texts while farming because you're relating to them in a way more literal way. There's text about getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden and toiling in the soil and dealing with briar and thorns and thistle and reading that text after spending a day weeding the fields of thorns and thistles and being scratched up and experiencing that toiling firsthand, it brings that story to life and it brings a different perspective to it. I wanted to speak to what you were saying about seeds because it was getting me really excited. (laughs) I'm very excited about seeds. So yeah, seeds hold so much. They hold so much information, just genetic information. They hold so much hope. You know, planting a seed, you can do everything you, you know to do to create the perfect environment for that seed to germinate and flourish. And it takes a little bit of hope and a little bit of faith. There's always the chance that something will go wrong and it won't germinate. So there's a lot of hope involved in that. And it reminds me of stories I've heard about our European ancestors, my European ancestors, taking with them garlic cloves, which if you've planted garlic, you know that you separate the cloves of a head of garlic and that's your garlic seed. So taking seed in your pockets with you while you're fleeing with fear of of persecution, fleeing into the unknown and taking that information and that hope with you in your pocket is just such a beautiful action of hope and resilience and investing in the future of community. And there's stories also about other diasporic people, African folks braiding seeds into their hair when they were stolen from Africa and and brought into slavery. And I think that that aligns really beautifully with different parts of our portion. 
a lot of the time when we speak about promises that God makes to the Israelite people or, or promises that God made to the patriarchs and, and back in Genesis, you know, we hear the word Zerao or Zeraim, this idea of seed of your descendants. And so they make like a literal connection between this idea of seed and this idea of descendants. And so we make this beautiful, beautiful relationship between humanity and earth, humanity and planting, and the relationship they're in. I think also your point on this idea of Africans who are literally breeding their history, breeding their heritage, breeding their horticulture into their hair as they head out is a really incredible alignment to our portion this week where Gabe even brought up, you know, it is up to us to not only treat the land well, it is up to us to treat every single person well because they can't exist without the other. That the land can't thrive without great cultivation. Humans also can't thrive without incredible agricultural support. Yeah, I just want to add that it's so interesting that you you put it that way because I think a lot of people, when they think about land before the era of agriculture, they imagine a wild, untamed wilderness where there wasn't a lot of fussing. And we know that indigenous peoples in this country, Turtle Island, North America, stewarded the land for generations before the arrival of colonizers. We we know that they practiced so many of these sustainable, regenerative agricultural practices that you hear about now, like permaculture, agroforestry, um, irrigation, even monoculture and polyculture. So there was this tending to to the land and land stewardship. And we did that too in the in the lands to which we are indigenous. Also, it's interesting too, because the way that we as a people treat the land directly relates to how we treat each other. And it's such a big Jewish value to <clears throat> focus on the way the other is treated. And who that other happens to be, you know, changes over time. And we empathize with the other because we have been the other and are still the other in, in many places. And when you approach working with land with a desire to extract as much value as possible at the expense of the long-term health of that land at, at the expense of the people working that land. When you are treating the land like that, you're also treating the other in that same way. And it reminds me of this video I saw at this environmental conference in Detroit. The talk is called The Womb at the Center of the Earth. And this indigenous elder talks about how there's this pendulum that swings between patriarchal power and matriarchal power and it swings in different ways at different times and that right now it's way in the direction of patriarchal power and with that comes the denigration of the feminine which includes the land and communities that are really in touch with the land and wisdom that is very much in touch with the land so that's what I mean when I say the way that we are treating the land echoes out into the way that we treat earth-based peoples and earth-based cultures and even earth-based values like 
for feminine values like communal, you know, communalism over individualism, for example. I want to take us in one more direction. I love this idea that you put forward of treating the land with respect also translates into treating the other with respect. I'm also curious as to how treating ourselves with respect comes into that. Specifically, it occurs to me that you describe yourself not only as a farmer, not only as somebody who works the soil, not only somebody who works the earth, but also as a food grower. Now, I love food. I think food is great. And I'm curious as to how you relate to food from that kind of perspective of treating ourselves with respect, treating the earth with respect, treating the other with respect, but also, uh, in my experience, talking to people who work with food and specifically growers, those people tend to be a lot more mindful about where their food comes from and about what it means and the amount of work that it takes. So I'm curious as to how you relate to that as a food grower, as a Jewish person, and just as a person in general. Yeah, thanks for that question. Growing food has radically changed the way that I think about food and our food system and the way that I eat as well. It's kind of like you don't know what you don't know. And so once you start once you start looking into any area of learning, there's layers that peel back and you you learn more and more about and and with farming and learning about the food system, it's so complex and there's so much history there and there's so much that goes into any food product arriving at your table before you, you know, whether it's a whole food item like a head of broccoli or a processed food item like a loaf of bread. There's so many resources that went into that thing. And there's a conversation around ethical sourcing of food, but also having food that is healthy be accessible. And food is expensive for that reason. There's so much that goes into it. I have become a lot more interested in eating seasonally and eating locally. I think that's what I try to share with people who are interested in making more ethical food choices is can you find food that is grown in your city, in your area? Can you talk to the farmer at the farmer's market, develop a relationship with that person, get to know their growing practices? If you are a meat eater, is there a local butcher that practices, you know, nose to tail butchery? So they're selling not only premium cuts, but also everything in between and the organs and trying to use every bit of that animal without waste. And that animal also was farmed locally using ethical practices, like was pasture raised and, and treated well. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I think it does. I'm, I'm curious as to how you relate this idea of ethical consumption with Judaism specifically, whether it comes from this Torah portion or whether it comes from some semblance of an idea of kashrut or some semblance of our food-related liturgy, this idea that we're supposed to bless God not only before we eat, but also after. How does your Judaism inform your mindfulness about food? And how does your mindfulness about food 
influence your Judaism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that you bring up kashrut because it's something I didn't grow up with. I didn't grow up keeping kosher. And I learned about what it looked like to keep kosher through friends and later in life. And this question of what is kosher or fit to eat today you know, these laws were developed in a time when we were living as an agrarian society. So when we were blessing food and thanking God, it was a much more direct connection between ourselves and food and the land and God. Now it's like there's so many different steps and people in between us and the food that's on our plate. So saying a blessing and thinking not only of God and the more than human world, but also the farm workers who hopefully are making a living wage as they are growing and harvesting and packaging and distributing your food to you. And when you're a food grower, you can remember those different acts as well. So your relationship to that meal is just really meaningful. And I think that's what so much of this work is about for me and the Jewish connection too. I am just searching for meaning (laughs) in this meaningless void of an existence. (laughs) And food is really how I've brought so much meaning to my days and the Jewish connections just provide so much of that. And sometimes it takes a little work of rethinking things like kashrut and making it relevant and and wrestling with it in that way. I just want to say thank you because you definitely had me think about something in a different way, which is generally a goal that we have on the podcast for our listeners and is awesome when that happens for for me, Gabe, and Edan on our own. And when I heard you speaking, especially about ethical butchering, but just generally, I think when we talk about the laws of the land, I thought about this value of bal tashkit, like this idea of not destroying, which sometimes ecologists have changed to like, do not waste, right? This idea of, of do not waste. And so I think that for me, that's that's definitely going to be a message that I am able to walk away with. That's something that I'm going to be thinking about past this episode. And so my question for you, Carly, is that if you had one message that you wanted to share with all of our listeners and not just Amanda, what would your call to action be? What are you hoping that your listeners might do or know or think about differently after hearing this episode? I think two things. One is that becoming more mindful around food and by extension land and by extension people is a really great way to do your part as an individual in working against the incredible issues of our time, like climate collapse and white supremacy. And um, it's a really hands-on way that you can make an impact just through your choices around food the sourcing things locally so that there's less of a carbon footprint because it hasn't traveled from the global south or buying from a local farm where you know the farmer and you know that the farm workers are making a living wage and that they're treated well. And the other thing too, kind of on the other side of that is that 
these issues are so multifaceted and beyond the actions of any one of us as individuals. So it's really important, I think, that we don't pick each other apart around the values-based choices that we make and our actions as individuals and keep the pressure on who's benefiting the most, which are, you know, not your friend who is uh, eating from McDonald's every day. It's whoever owns McDonald's and the incredible amount of money that they're making at the expense of the exploitation of the land and people. So knowing that there are things that you can do, hands-on things that you as an individual can do to make your food more meaningful, your relationship to food and land more informed and ethical. And that it's it's like that quote from the Pure Care vote, it's not upon us to finish the work, but neither are we free to desist from it. We don't wanna let the size of these issues overwhelm us into inaction, but we also wanna keep the perspective and the pressure on this is much bigger than us and let's not pick each other apart and just let things around us go on unchecked. It's not every day that I get to welcome someone onto the podcast that I have known for 11 years, but today is that day. I'm so, so stoked to have Nicole Bard as our Q&A guest today. Nicole recently ventured out to the Metro Detroit area to work at the Michigan State University Extension Tollgate Farm and Education Center. She currently works on multimedia productions and communications for the farm, but will be out in the field in a few weeks to begin her sustainable agriculture apprenticeship. Last year during the pandemic, Nicole serendipitously found her love of farming through a farm apprenticeship with Dig Acres in Orange County, New York. Before fully tapping into her love of the land and cute plants, Nicole spent three meaningful years working in the Jewish engagement world in Buffalo, New York. I will also add that Nicole has a real love of anything that is cute, fluffy, or furry. And so truly it is my honor to Welcome my old dog's best friend and my new dog's soon-to-be best friend, Nicole Bard. I am thrilled to pass the mic to you. Thank you so much, Amanda. I'm so happy to be here, and shout out to Ellie. All right. Nicole, I want to say if you love cute and fluffy things, I invite you to come visit Adama Farm, where we have three-week-old baby goats that are some of the cutest, fluffiest creatures I've encountered in, in some time. Okay, so I have to say that Goats have goats and I have never gotten along until recently. Um, they would always jump on my back. Anyways, I stayed away from petting zoos. But since working at this new farm, they were like, you got to see the baby goats. And I was like, oh, these are really cute. So I think now that I'm taller, it's better. So I would love to come see them. <laughs> so let's talk about farming a little bit because there are many different approaches to farming. There's animals. There are vegetables. Um, there's all sorts of things. So what do you farm and how did you get into farming? Yeah, so I'll speak a little bit to what Adama Farm does. We are an organic vegetable farm, first and foremost. And we farm with as many regenerative or sustainable farming practices as we can. It's things like not using synthetic chemical fertilizers and pesticides, um, growing a wide diversity of plants and flowers to attract 
beneficial insects and pollinators. And we've learned the lesson in many different ways that diversity is strength and resilience. And that's something that we see every day on the farm. We have dairy goats that provide milk and cheese for our community and laughs and cuddles for the baby goats. And we have chickens that provide eggs. We also experiment with other growing practices. So right now we have just turned a field that for the past 18 years that we've been farming here has been a kind of traditional row crop field where we'll till the soil at the beginning of the year or, you know, take a machine and to just explain what tilling is, it kind of breaks up and mixes up the soil in the top couple inches, well, really more like six to eight inches of, of the soil. And we're converting that field into a no-till bed, a no-till field, because what we're learning is that there is so much life beneath the soil and it's very delicate and very important to the health of the plants, the nutrient content of the plants. And these microorganisms live at a certain level in the soil. And when you till them and you invert that soil, they end up where they're not supposed to be and the soil health goes down. So we're doing things like no-till and we have a permaculture forest where we have an overstory of fruit and nut trees. And beneath that there's herbs and you know, culinary herbs, medicinal herbs, fruit bushes, and then we have ground cover beneath that. Permaculture, by the way, is a kind of agricultural design that mimics systems in nature, and its roots are in indigenous land stewardship. And what else? Yeah, that's some things. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's awesome. You, you asked a second question, though. Oh, how were you introduced to farming? Thank you. So I came to farming really as a, first of all, I'm obsessed with food and who among us, right? But I love to cook. My parents actually met in a cooking class. They're both fantastic cooks and kind of instilled in me a reverence, a respect for quality ingredients and from that interest kind of developed an interest in nutrition and that organically <laughs> developed into an interest in farming. And I learned so much of what I know about farming through Detroit agricultural leaders that have been doing this work since way before it was cool <laughs> and out of necessity to feed themselves and their community and food and farming developed an even deeper draw for me when I started to learn about it as a vehicle to examine social issues and systems of power and oppression. So I think that's really important. It kind of might stem into my next question. When thinking about the Torah portion, it mentions that God promises to walk among us if we follow the laws and commandments. So I know that when going on a field walk, that's such a special time to think about your crops and 
things you need to do and just kind of when I would take a time to think about life in general. If I got to the farm early to take a walk. Do you ever use a, the field walk as a time to walk with God or a time to think about some more serious issues? That is such a beautiful question. I think that being in the natural world is the most connected I ever feel to God. And so doing those field walks, it really gives opportunity to see God and see awe in all kinds of tiny and giant things. And I think this kind of doom and gloomy part of the the text today that talks about kind of punitive results of not observing these laws, we see that during field walks too. We see pests that are, you know, we see we see greater populations of pests that should have died from the latest hard freeze, but we didn't get that hard freeze. So those pupa in the soil lived on and now we have even more thrips than we did last year or drought or record heat waves or flooding. So we are in intimate relationship with those punishments as well. So there's there's a lot of awe, but a lot of reckoning with the uh, weight of responsibility that comes with being in relationship to God's creation. Awesome. So through all of your years of farming, what is your favorite crop to grow or to harvest? Because I have a love-hate relationship with some harvesting. Thanks for mentioning that. I think people get really idealistic about farming, myself included. It's a very dreamy, picturesque thing. And a lot of people just forget to harvest. It's like we do all this work to put the food in the soil, the plants in the soil, and then things are over-ripening on the vine. Tomatoes are splitting. If your tomatoes are splitting, it means you need to harvest them sooner. So let's see. Lately, my favorite thing to harvest that we're getting ready to harvest at Adama is salad turnips. Have you all tried these salad turnips? They're one variety is called Hakurai turnips. Oh, yes. Hakurai. Yeah. They're so good. They're just these little white tender turnips and you just pull them out of the ground and there they are. um, And they're delicious. You just, you know, brush off some of that dirt, keep a little on though, because that's probably good for your microbiome. And they're just very immediate gratification because they, they have a short time that they need to grow. Another thing that I love to grow is alliums. So garlic and onions. Every time I harvest an onion, I'm just like, look, it's an onion. It just grew in the ground. Can you believe it? Like it's truly a miracle every time. Oh, that's amazing. Um, I Hakurai turnips are so cute. I can't can't say it enough. Love them. And same for the alliums. Oh, just the best. But I'm personally, broccoli is my favorite forever. I'll love it. But thanks for answering all my questions. It was amazing and so cool to see that Jewish farming exists also. I feel like maybe I knew, but um, it's pretty incredible all the work you're doing, so. 
Thank you, Nicole. Super great to meet a fellow Metro Detroiter, a Metro Detroit Jewish female farmer. It's good to see another, right? Yeah. (laughs) Well, we should wash all this food talk down with a nice beverage. So as a toast to spring and to Parashat Behar Bechukotai, we joyfully present the Champagne Shemitah. Start by making an herbaceous simple syrup. For this one, you're going to take a cup of water and a cup of sugar up to a boil and stir until the sugar is completely dissolved. Lower the heat to a medium-low and stir in a tightly packed cup of fresh herbs. I used a combination of basil, mint, and thyme, but feel free to experiment with different combinations. Let that simmer for about five minutes and then remove from the heat. Let it cool to room temp, strain out the herbs, and keep it in the fridge for up to a week. When you're ready to make the drink, swirl a bit of vermouth, no more than a quarter of an ounce, in a champagne flute, and then dump it out. We just want the essence of vermouth. Next, in a cocktail shaker, combine one ounce of fresh lemon juice, one ounce of gin, and three quarters of an ounce of your herby simple syrup. Shake with ice and strain into your champagne flute. Top with champagne, or just Prosecco, or another sparkling wine as a shout-out to the grapes of the Torah portion, and garnish with fresh herb leaves. For a non-alcoholic version, omit the vermouth, replace the gin with one ounce of ginger ale, and the sparkling wine with sparkling apple cider. You can use sparkling grape juice if you want to stick to the wine grape flavor, but I've found it to be pretty sweet, so cut back on the simple syrup to taste. Raise a glass to freedom, to spring, and to Shemitah. And don't forget to make one for your neighbor. L'chaim. Yum. It sounds incredible. I'll take two. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Just, I just love it. This is also a great drink for Mother's Day. For those of you who are trying to figure out what to do for Mother's Day. Yeah, it's classy and delicious. Celebratory. Also the name Champagne Shemitah. That sounds like that's going to be my DJ name. Champagne Shemita. <laughs> nice. Yeah, called it. I'd go to that concert. Well, as we are getting ready to reap the fruits of this episode, it is time for, for thank yous and closing cues. Carly, Nicole, Gabe, and Idan, and Behar Bechukotai, we have given some top tips for keeping the land happy and healthy. What's your number one tip for us to stay healthy and happy these days? It can be a little tricky during, I don't know, a worldwide pandemic. Carly, we'll start with you. I would say if there's one thing Shemitah has to teach us louder than all the rest is the value of rest and the sacredness of rest. And we live in a country with an industrialized food system that says work, 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 productivity, 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 rest when you're dead. And Shemitah is just so countercultural to that in this way that challenges the, the culture of productivity that has become an obsession with for so many of us. So I would say Re-examine your relationship to productivity. What does it mean to be productive? Why is that kind of productivity better than another? And with rest, take the shame out of rest, bring in the sacred rest. 
I am hearing you deeply during this finals week. Nicole? I think I'll talk about the one of the other highlights of the portion this week, which is the land and just enjoying the land. I think during the pandemic, I saw more people outside on walks than I ever have. And granted, you know, sidewalk might not be what we mean by the beautiful earth and land, but you can look up and see the sky and the sun. But just try to find some beautiful space or land or whatever it may be um, and just breathe in fresh air. I think that's super important. Thank you, Nicole. Idan? Well, Carly actually said part of what I was going to say, but I think I'll expand on it in a different way. I wasn't necessarily going to say rest, but I think that's 100% important. And I think that another aspect of it is taking time for yourself, whether it's resting or doing something that you enjoy and you're able to just take a break from the day-to-day grind of work. And so per usual, I sometimes have issues taking my own advice. And so I, I haven't really been able to take a weekend off for a bit too long. And so that's something that I'm trying to work on. And I'm actively finding ways to lighten my workload so I can actually be able to take those breaks, take weekends off like a normal person should be able to. And I think that's extremely important. I agree. Keep. Yeah. I want to go back to a couple of things that Nicole said earlier. In Nicole's conversation with Carly, Nicole brought up this idea of a field walk, which, to be fair, as somebody who is not a farmer, is not something that's particularly familiar to me. But it did remind me of my, this is the nerdiest thing I've ever said on this podcast. It did remind me of my favorite Hapax Legomenon from the Torah, which is the word Lasuach from Genesis 24, verse 63. And it says, Isaac Lasuach Basadeh, that Isaac does something in the field. And there's some disagreement on what it means. And one idea is that most biblical dictionaries put forward is that it's a scribal error and it's actually just supposed to say he goes out into the field. But the rabbis have this other idea that lasuach actually comes from the same root as the word sicha, which means conversation. And so there's this connection between meditating in the field or walking out into the field and having a conversation. And I think there's something really beautiful about that. So for me, I try to get outside at least once a day, no matter the weather. And yeah, whether it's in a field or on the sidewalk, try to have that walk, that going out, that conversation. I really appreciate that, Gabe. As somebody who has tried to drag you on more walks than I can imagine, I'm really excited for when you come back to Brooklyn and we can prospect park walk, even if we can't field walk. For me, I just want to throw out there something I'm thinking about that aligns with what Carly was talking about before about mindful eating, less about where my food comes from, although that's a new challenge to try, but realistically ensuring that I am starting to sit down at an actual table when eating and not trying to rush a meal at my desk or in front of the television or while doing work. And that's something that Gabe and I are committing to in the near future is really trying to make sure that that meals are eaten at the table and that we block out like an actual half an hour for for a meal just to sit and talk and eat, hopefully not talking while you're eating. 
But listen, like a lot of people like to talk however they like to talk. And so Carly, if people want to speak with you, if they want to continue the conversation, how can they best find or follow you moving forward? You can send me an email at Adama, A-D-A-M-A-H, at Hazone, H-A-Z-O-N.org. You can check out Adama.org to learn more about the farm and the fellowship. You can follow me on the gram. I'm Carly B. Sugar. And Nicole, if people want to hear about your adventures in Michigan, where can they find you and where you're working? They can also find me on the gram, Nicole with two E's, Bard with two D's, or follow along on some farm adventures on Instagram as well at MSU Tollgate Farm. Lots of fun there. Incredible. Carly, Nicole, any last words, thoughts, concerns, or jokes? I wish I had prepared a joke. We hear that a lot on this episode. (laughs) Or on this podcast, rather. (laughs) Plants are really cute, and I just can't get enough of them. And I hope uh, after this episode, people can go look at some cute plants and enjoy them. I have a really important piece of advice, which is don't undercook your eggplants. They should be cooked thoroughly. The middle of them should be nice and soft. They should melt in your mouth. People do aubergines so dirty and it needs to stop. I appreciate the passion that you have now brought to our listeners, especially maybe that last one could have been a hot take, but we thank you for it. Thank you, Carly, for coming on. Thank you for Nicole and your awesome questions and for putting up with me for as long as you have. Thank you, Gabe, for being an epic co-host and matching Nicole today. Thank you, Edan, for just being here. We're really excited to have you back and also for making sure that our technology works and that our episode sounds really wonderful. And thank you to all of our listeners. We're really excited to continue being with you. And believe it or not, uh, by the time that you hear this, we will have passed our six-month mark. And so we're celebrating with all of you six months in the world. And we can't wait for six more. Gabe, I feel these days I am spending so much time at my computer and inside and in one space that the idea of a field walk sounds incredible, extraordinary. One problem, I live in the middle of Brooklyn. That does sound like a problem. But you know, even in the middle of Brooklyn, you've got parks, you've got all sorts of green space. And if I recall correctly, you have a really nice puppy who I'm sure would love to go on a field walk with you. So it's okay if we substitute a field walk for a park walk? I can't see why not. You know, la suach ba park. Okay, so ignoring Gabe's really bad jokes, this was a really extraordinary episode, especially because Carly mentioned a lot of things I had never thought about before. Being really mindful about where food comes from, this idea of nose-to-tail butchering, making sure that we're not wasting animals or plants or seeds, but also how incredibly special it is to note the relationship between the Earth's well-being and humanity's well-being. Definitely. One thing that I really appreciated was this idea of eating seasonally that she brought up. I had never thought about eating seasonally. Like, I knew that, like, corn was best in August, and, like, that was pretty much the extent to which I understood eating seasonally until I lived in Israel. Because living in America near, like, big supermarkets and stuff, I was used to being able to get whatever produce I wanted at any time of year. 
And so one day when I was in Israel, I said, I really want some broccoli. And I went to the supermarket and there was no broccoli. And then I went to another supermarket and there was no broccoli. And so I said to one of my friends, I'm like, hey, is there like just not broccoli in Israel? And they said, well, it's not broccoli season. And I said, well, what's broccoli season? And so, yeah, clearly I had never really considered it before. That's just a small example of the ways in which we relate to the earth. I also think it's meaningful that I had that experience in Israel because all of these agricultural laws are prefaced in this Torah portion with when you are in the land. So there's a point to be made that these laws are land specific, that they're specific to the land of Israel and outside of the land, we don't necessarily need to follow them. What I think is amazing about Carly and Nicole is that they're bringing in this mindfulness. They're bringing in these ideas of connecting to the earth in a way that is both mindful and Jewish and taking it not only into the modern day, but into our modern context, both in time and space. Yeah, I mean, look, seasonal eating is both good for the economy and I would argue is good for our earth. I also keep on thinking about this idea of God walking with us when we're in the fields or when we're in nature and how for some of us, those are the most spiritual moments, right? Waking up early or staying out late, seeing a sunrise, watching a sunset, looking at ripples over a lake, being able to see the first flowers grow. There are really magical moments when you're out there and there's a really beautiful spiritual sensation. If you're just willing to slow down, take a moment take a breath, and take a chance on something new. Look, I know that earlier Gabe talked about the fact that we can pay for whatever, right? Like, everything has its price, except our environment shouldn't be the one that's always paying the price. And I think that was made really, really clear, both in this Parsha and through Carly and Nicole's conversation. Yeah. Carly kept bringing up the Garden of Eden and this idea of Adam and Adama, the punishment after Eden being that we would need to toil in the earth and through thistles and thorns in order to grow our food. But I think we need to remember that Shemitah is supposed to be not only a day of rest for the earth, but in the same way that Shabbat is a taste of the world to come, Shemitah is also a little taste of Eden. In that time when we didn't need to toil for our food, when we didn't need to work for it, we lived off of the land naturally, there was an equilibrium. And that's what paradise looks like. So as we get closer to that, as we approach this idea of living in harmony with the earth, I think it's important to remember that as far back as our tradition goes, that's what paradise looks like. So for everybody who works so hard to ensure that we have food on our tables, for everyone who is working harder to be more thoughtful about the food that goes on our tables, and for everyone who just is working to even put food on the table, we wish you a wonderful week. We hope that this parsha has been meaningful, and we look forward to being with you next week. L'chaim. L'chaim. And because we're ending the book of Leviticus, chazak, chazak, v'nit chazek.
hopefully after listening to this episode, we'll have planted some seeds for ways that you can be in a more meaningful relationship with land and food.